Hi folks, this is Shaq Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 13th, 2015. This is episode 1534 of the Survival Podcast. And it's, wait for it, let's see if I can do it with this strained voice. Friday! 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 That's probably the only one I have in me today. Fortunately, it's the only one I have to do. And with this being a listener call show and lots of stuff from the expert panel, maybe after that my voice will get a little bit of a, of a break today. But I have tremendous stuff for you guys today. Some basic stuff like we always talk about, some cool stuff from the panel, and uh, a finish that I think you guys are really going to enjoy uh, talking about the current generation and a new way of seeing the opportunities that exist there. Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Hey, you want to be tactical, you need to get to Sawtack Tactical. So, wow. If you want to be tactical, you need to get over to Sawtooth Tactical because they have all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. They've got it all, man. Mag Magpul magazines, Maxpedition bags, everything in between, including the awesome Manly Titanium Spork. Check them out today at sawtack.com. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho. That's why they're called Sawtack in the first place. And uh, when you deal with a veteran-operated company, you know you're going to get well taken care of because, well, military types, we're a little bit procedural. I mean, we, we make sure things happen. So check them out today at sawtack.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go, you'll find them at readymaderesources.com, the company that says what it does and does what it says. Point, click, and buy on their website, and you'll have all those resources on the way to your house so fast, you'll wonder how they do it. They do it because they're organized, and they have, to be blunt, their shit together. And they do have it all. They've got everything. 12-volt appliances for your solar and wind stuff. They've got stuff to build solar and wind. They've got stuff uh, for your, your, your firearms accessories. They've got stuff for your gardening. You check it out. You want to make your own long-term storage food. They've got everything from pressure cookers to vacuum sealers, O2 absorbers. They've got it all. Where? ReadyMadeResources.com. Remember, Sawtooth ReadyMade and many of our sponsors do give you discounts if you're members of what? The Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. So cruise on over to the Survival Podcast. If you uh, haven't joined already, click on Members and learn how you can become a supporting member. And with all the discounts we give you, you'll get your money back. Most people find their membership is actually profitable. That's what I try to do. I try to build a membership program that lets you support what I do, but puts money back in your pocket and gives you a lot of other really great, cool stuff. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. How fast is that? Anyway, all of you guys do qualify for a discount. Email me with service discount TSPC in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I will get you the discount code back when, before, not after you join. All right. With that, let us get into the year that was the episode, 1534. Alex has four for us today. One is the Society of Jesus, a conspiracy to educate the masses. It tells you the origin of the Jesuits. John Calvin's conversion and how conversion works. King Henry VIII and the loyalty oaths. And Jewish mysticism, the Holy Ari is born. Um, I'm going to read that one because, well, there's just some cool reality to this one that Alex doesn't really mention. Rabbi Isaac Luri, the Holy Ari, or the Holy Lion, is born this year in Jerusalem. 
He will change the way Jewish mysticism is approached, and he is sometimes called the father of modern Jewish mysticism, which is Kabbalah. However, Jerome Shalom will bring Jewish mysticism to the attention of academics in modern day. If I said anybody's name wrong, I'm sorry. I don't speak Hebrew. Uh, my take by Alex Shrugged. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Rabbi Isaac Luris Berth. I study Kabbalah, but only as a parable to support my meditation. For those who want to study the history of Jewish mysticism without actually studying mysticism itself, read Nine and a Half Mystics, The Kabbalah Today by Herbert Weiner. Um, my understanding of Kabbalah is limited because I'm not a religious type, but I tend to find whatever information is useful to me and extrapolate from it. So one day I'm listening to these dudes, I don't remember when, where, or how, talking about uh, this thing called Kabbalah. And this is when it was first becoming the, the, the faith of the celebrity, right? Like all these celebrities that have Kabbalah teachers and they're cool because it's new age and they contemplate their navel and they're like Buddhist Kabbalist whatever, you know. So it started getting talked about and they had a guy on it actually explain what it was all about. So this wasn't like, this was a secular station. This wasn't a religious station. Um, so, but they were like interested, like, what is this? Are these people nuts? Is there anything to it? And this guy was a rabbi that, you know, taught this stuff. And he was going on about, you know, their beliefs in God and stuff. And, and I'll, okay, I'll listen. I'm always interested in people's views. Um, but then he gets to the origin of the universe. And he describes it this way, and if I don't get it exactly right, this is probably 15 years ago in my car, right? Probably driving between Pennsylvania and Connecticut or something to go to a sales meeting. So I'm going to do my best with it. But basically it is that God, whatever God is, for whatever reason God chose to, concentrated all of what God was into a single point until it built up such energy that it shattered like a fracturing crystal and expanded into what we see as the entire cosmos, the entire universe, the origin of the cosmos itself. The birth of cosmology would be the birth of the cosmos. Hmm. Well, that sounds an awful lot like the Big Bang now, doesn't it? Which wouldn't be that amazing if this cat was uh, developing this Kabbalistic stuff in, you know, 1975. Since he was born in 1534, what, 1584, he'd be 50 years old, right? So if you're, whatever timeline all this was developed, it was gone back into the canonical books and other things and then extrapolated out and oral traditions and all combined together. This is all before the year 1600. Now, <laughs> the Big Bang is one of the, and, and all of the things that come with it are some of the most advanced physical theory, physical science theory uh, of the last hundred years. This guy has essentially the same theory. Well, here's where it gets even more interesting. This is where I get to show you a little bit of my... Uh, my cosmological uh, physicist nerdism. In the universe, we only know of four physical forces that enact themselves. And they are gravity, electromagnetism, weak interactions, and strong nuclear force. These four interactions for things like planets to coalesce, for cells to work, all must be in perfect tune like a radio. You, you tune the radio out just a little bit and it won't work. They have to be in a perfect state of balance. The interesting conundrum, though, and 
I don't know a lot about Cabal, but this this guy that created it postulated in some of his writings, to my understanding, that there was some level of a conflict, right? I didn't really understand, like, like there's no way it could all be in one place and everything be the way it is now, and there had to be things like this, what they call now an inflationary model. And there's something called the Higgs field, if you might have heard of the Higgs boson particles, the God particle, where there's these points that are a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second after the Big Bang, where inside these fields with these masses of energy and high temperatures, the math states that there's just enough disruption in the balance of gravity, electromagnetism, weak interaction, and strong nuclear force for energy to manifest itself as matter rather than have a counterbalance of antimatter. And it has to be perfect, and then it has to have perfection on the other end for the coalesced matter to coalesce into what we see as a cosmos of the universe. And this guy's answer to the conundrum was God did it. But more interesting was that God had to do it because everything that's manifest must be part of the creator. The creator cannot separate himself from the creation. And therefore, we are all part of the body of God. And you're talking about a stoic mysticism here, not this whole, uh, you know, like pantheistic, I guess would be one way to look at this, more of like there has to be an explanation, so we have to find it. And the world of modern cosmology and the world of this Kabbalistic thinking are getting closer and closer, not further apart, as science advances things with particle acceleration. And science might have a different word for it, but in the end, it's the unity theory of all things being interactive and all things being interlaced. The concept that we can actually take particles that have coalesced together and separate them and take, let's say, electrons that were separated off of two um Uh, two two parts, two planes of the same atom and separate them where at atomic distances it'd be like you and I being separated by a continent and manipulate one and cause it to spin in the opposite direction and its partner particle will respond with no lag in time. This is not physically possible and yet it happens. Or that the researcher's intention this is where things break down like it's science In science, the way you prove your theory is I run an experiment and you repeat the experiment and we get the same uniform results. Some of these levels of quantum physics and the, uh, the level we're able to go to now down peering into the subatomic, two researchers do the same thing with different expectations and get different results. Well, if you've actually done the same thing, regardless of who's right or wrong, you should get the same results. But at some places, they get to a point where they go, we just don't get it, we ain't got the math right yet. But some of them actually say, it's almost impossible to ignore that on some level, these particles are responding differently based on our expectations and intentions. All I'm going to say is, as a deist, I find that very interesting. And that's not for all of you well-wishers who try to save me from myself or whatever of the religious community. You guys can do what you want. I respect what you do. That's more for the atheists that ask me 
how I can have belief in something like a god from a logical context. I don't know. Math seems to back up some level of creative force, however you wish to describe it. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I know that was a deep, a little bit deep into the realm of, you know, astrophysics, cosmology, and, and, and mathematics, and, 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 and physical, physical reality, but, uh, I don't know. It's interesting to be able to span these things. And, you know, that's not to show off. It's, I hope that I can convey to you guys something really, really important about all of these things. I, I, I mentioned yesterday that, The old wealthy that have managed to remain wealthy always raise their children in a Renaissance man or Renaissance woman style to be able to interact these patterns at multiple levels. That's what you need to do. What, no matter what you believe, you need to understand as many different viewpoints as possible. And then you recognize pattern and then you're able to adapt. It works for the people that it probably shouldn't work for. Why can't it work for the people that do intend to do well for others. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take that first call. Hey, Jack. This is Aaron Foringer. I'm going to start my own podcast, uh, thanks part in, in part to inspiration by you. Um, any hints, clues, hidden knowledge you want to give out? Uh, background. Um, I'm going to be a serialized book of my first ebook, which is a science fiction novel, Scouts Out, which I published at smashwords.com. Uh, you read on the air my story, America's Big Game, back in September of 2014. And it'll be a weekly podcast coming out probably every Saturday, approximate running time, 25 to 35 minutes. And I already have some professional grade theme music to go along with it. Uh, any hints or help that you can give me, that would be great. Thanks a lot. Boy, this is going to be a really short answer. Of all the people that have come to me and asked me to give them advice in starting a podcast, there's one that has an active, successful podcast right now, and his name is John Pugliano. So I'm going to give you the advice that I gave John Pugliano. Stop talking to me, start talking to your audience, and go get on with it and get it done. Uh, to be blunt, you just spent a minute asking me about a podcast that could have been spent recording your podcast. Uh, as far as business advice, you can go to jackspearco.com. There's over a hundred and some odd um, uh, podcasts there on business. I have made the following promise to the people that love the podcast there that was called Five Minutes with Jack. When one person comes back to me and demonstrates to me that in their business they've done everything that I've already told you to do and given away absolutely for free uh, that's given away in that podcast and set their business up based on that model and still feels they need more, I will do another podcast over there. Until then, that's what there is, and that's all that you need. And if you do all that, you're going to be wildly successful, and you're not going to have time to ask me what you should do next. But that's my advice. My advice is stop talking to me. Stop talking about what you're going to do. You clearly have a decent enough voice to be able to record things. You have a plan. You know what you want to do. So go do it. That is all. Next question. Hey, Jack. This is Leo from Iowa. I was calling in to ask if you had any ideas on what could productively be done with a shitload of tires. Uh, I got about 60 to 70 tires on my property that I originally had obtained to make some kind of a shooting backstop and either fill them with dirt, 
or sand or something like that. And after moving them a few times, I'm realizing that they're more of a pain in the ass than they're worth. Uh, I just want to see if you had any ideas for something that could be done with these and uh, hope to uh, hear your response. Thanks. You know, um, at one time I got my hands on eight really big truck tires that I was going to build a potato tower in, and I was going to stack them on top of each other and grow potatoes. And when the plant got so big, put another tire there, and I had four and four, and I was going to do all these wonderful things with them. And eventually I realized something. People get paid money to get rid of tires for a reason. If you don't know exactly what you want to do with them, they're really bulky and a pain in the ass, and they grow mosquitoes. So I understand, and my tires went away. So that tells you my you know, overall overriding, reaching idea about tires. Now, the most practical use I can think of for a, a tire right now is to get a reciprocating saw and cut it in half into two pieces, like right through the tread. So you have like two saucers. And then to take that and put it around a new tree to protect the root system and to mulch inside of there and make sure you pull the mulch off of your tree. What this will do is it will keep animals, dogs, cats, birds, etc. so much from peeing right at the base of the tree and digging it up. If you have chickens, it will help prevent them from scratching uh, around it. That's that's the most, so if you had a hundred of 70 tires, you could basically almost make like 140 pseudo-era pants for your trees. That, that's like the best thing that I can think of to do with them. I know everybody's going to build an earth ship, build an earth ship. Well, 70 tires doesn't build much of an earth ship. I, I guess it could be earth ship-like storage, right? If you put it below grade for a couple levels, it took all the dirt so that you know, kind of look pretty low and you did like a packed earth ship, like root cellar, I guess that could work with it. But this is what I've said to everybody says, I'm going to build an earth ship, Jack. I'm going to move to New Mexico, out in the desert and go, well, you got the location, right? I mean, that's where they're perfect. That is the best place, the 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 this the, the sub-desert regions where you get some rain and there's some scrub and all, not the middle of the, the Death Valley. But yeah, that's land's affordable. You can go off-grid. Um, the, the climate's right for the passive cooling to work. Solar's minimal, but all you need, enough roof service and catch your water. Yeah, that's a great location. But before you do that, I suggest getting a single tire and packing it and then think about doing that several to multiple thousands of times before, you, and then realize all you've got now is a shell. Um, the Earthship is something that I think if the regulations weren't in the way, that there'd be better technology to get the dirt in the tire available, because there would be enough volume of something like that to get enough demand to where the innovative mind would say, you know, how do we do this? How do we do this? There's one guy I had on the air that built a packer thing that sort of kind of worked, but I don't know. I haven't heard of anybody using it and being really happy with it. So I don't know. Putting dirt in a tire is, to be blunt, a bitch. And when I look at, like, okay, what would do the same thing for the same amount or less money, the earth bag, I mean, you fill a bag, you fill it with dirt, you set it on top of, you know, barbed wire between the courses and it just it's there it's and it's not easy either but it's so much easier um and it just seems like it does everything that an earthship would do for you with a hell of a lot less work um so i don't know if anybody has any creative uses for tires i'd like to see them uh there i can't remember where 
But one time I saw a guy, he was basically making like bird and squirrel houses out of a tire. You'd cut them and fold them and rivet them together. Um, and then you hang them in trees. So you might look like squirrel house from tire, bird house from tire. That's a lot of them. But, I mean, you could sell them, you know, more than you needed. You hang one from a tree and make a tire swing, clean it off real good. But anyway, that's all I got, man. I, I really have gotten to the point where, like you, I thought they were a good idea, and then I used them for some things, and I wasn't really that happy with the results and had to get rid of them. And, again, there's people who make a living just disposing of tires, and there's a reason. And I, I do think now, like, one of the things they're doing is they're shredding them, and they're using them, like, in light and concrete products and stuff like that. That might be the best use for them is all, but it doesn't really help you. Uh, but, again, come to the show notes today, guys, 1534, and comment with your ideas for a guy stuck with 70 tires. Hi, Jack. This is David from northern Wisconsin, rogue libertarian in the forums and on Zello. I have an expert panel question for you and Darby Simpson. I am interested in starting a pastured hog operation on about 100 acres of mixed hardwood forest and open pasture land in northern Wisconsin, starting with five hogs in year one with a goal of 120 to 150 hogs in time. I project selling a market hog with a hanging weight of 180 to 200 pounds priced at $4 per pound for a whole hog and $5 per pound for a half. Butchery and related processing costs are not included in this price. Is this a reasonable price structure? What should I pr project for supplemental feed costs in the first year of operation with my less-than-perfect pasture? What other direct production costs should I account for in my budget? The more you can express these costs in terms of percent of sales would help me and other listeners apply your answers to our own unique situation. Also, what breeds of hog should I consider? I would like to produce a well-marbled pork with a good balance of lean and fat. Will the six to seven month season I have be sufficient to hit my weight gain goal? Do you have any other concerns relating to the production of this pastured pork that I should be aware of? Thanks for all you do for the TSP community and for taking the time to answer my question. All right, well, that's definitely a Darby Simpson question, and uh, I'll warn you in advance, Darby's answer is like 16 minutes long. I usually limit the expert counsel to about six minutes long, but this was a complex and um, a deep question, and I think it's a good question because there's so many people that are out there thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to get into some kind of food production business, and I, I think it's great, but I think it's a lot more complex than a lot of people expect. Um, I often talk about what can be done, and when you talk about what can be done from a standpoint of this is how it's done, it sounds easy, and in some ways it is, but it's also about getting everything right and understanding all the ends of the working system. So Darby's answer is, is pretty involved, so I'm going to go ahead and bring him on now to give you that answer. If you're not interested in hogs or doing this type of thing, you know you can always skip forward a little bit if that's what you want to do. But you might really learn something here if you don't, even if you don't think this is your bag. Because there's a lot of business concepts that go in with this type of thing as well. The other thing is, real quick, while I was listening to this question, I used the Google Foo and uh, found two links for you on building squirrel houses out of tires. So it wasn't a figment of my imagination. And those links are in the show notes. And with that, Mr. Simpson, how do we uh, do all of this stuff with the hogs? 
Hi, Jack. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer David's question about starting a pastured pork operation. Uh, David, thanks so much for calling in your question. Um, I think that you've uh, selected a, a pretty awesome enterprise. If there's one thing we cannot keep up with uh, demand-wise on our farm, it's it's pastured pork, or in our case, forest-raised pork. Uh, the demand here is definitely uh, outpacing production. So I think that you've uh, you've got a pretty good potential business to get started here. And let's just dive right into your question. You've really got a lot of things going on here, so I'm going to try and hit as many of these as I can in just a few minutes uh, for the the purposes of you know keeping this brief on the show. Um, you mentioned you've got about 100 acres of mixed uh, forest and, and open pasture, and that you want to start a pastured pork operation, and that's really the kind of the first thing I want to point out is uh, I used to do pastured pork. I used to run my pigs out on on pasture and the, the grasslands and and it works pretty well. They eat a, a fair amount of grass, um, but I found two real big problems with that model. Uh, the first was that you know a pasture is not a pig's normal habitat. In nature, we find pigs in the forest, so um, we found that in the summer, especially here in central Indiana, it can get pretty daggone hot. Um, you know, they just really didn't stay cool enough out on, on pasture. We had to provide uh, supplemental shade, which was a lot of extra labor and work. And even then, while it helped them, you know, it didn't really keep them cool enough. And when pigs are hot, trust me, they just lay there. And if they're just laying there, they're not eating. And if they're not eating, they're not gaining weight. You know, if they're not gaining weight, they're not making you money. So, we have actually switched to running our pigs in actual forest land. I'm not saying you shouldn't use pasture at all. Maybe use that as some extended season grazing area. If you've got an area where, you know, you could put them in the woods and then you can maybe bring them out, you know, uh, on pasture some in the fall or whatever with some portable fencing. But I guess my suggestion there is to actually raise the pigs in the forest because it's their natural habitat. And there's a lot of stuff in the woods that pigs will eat that no other animal is going to even look at. And uh, with that, uh, it you know it really can can cut down on how much supplemental grain you're giving them and cut your feed costs and increase your bottom line. Um, I think that starting with five hogs uh, your first year just to you know kind of get your feet wet is an excellent idea. I really wouldn't suggest starting with a whole lot more than that, you know, maybe maybe six or seven, but that's a just a good way to, you know, kind of learn the ropes and, and get things figured out. Um, and kind of skipping ahead a little bit, you asked about, you know, breeds. And while I do have my opinions about what breeds are best, um, I think for your first year, uh, if it's uh, if it's got four legs and a tail and two ears, it qualifies. Uh, honestly, I, I mean, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but it, you know, it, don't worry about it. Any pig's going to work the first year. You're just learning the ropes. It, you're really, it's more figuring out like what your infrastructure needs are and how to handle the animals and things of that nature. Um, now, with that said, if you've got a source close by for like some Berkshires or some some Durocs or something like that, those are two of my uh, uh, go-to breeds that I really like. Uh, and in fact, we, we've got a young man that's uh, starting a whole new business as a spinoff of what we're doing here that's custom farrowing pigs for us, and they're actually going to be a Duroc Burke cross, and we're really excited about those. Uh, there's a lot of good attributes uh, f- uh, for both of those pigs that work really well, uh, you know, raising them outside in the woods. Um, another breed that uh, takes a little bit longer, excellent meat quality, 
uh, would probably meet some of the characteristics that you're thinking about are Tamworths. And I have raised Tamworths. Um, while they're very docile and easygoing as adults, I will tell you that they are very excitable and super jittery uh, as little bitty pigs. And I would not suggest those for a beginner. Um, frankly, I, you know, I don't care if I ever have them again. I mean, I love the meat quality, but man, they are, uh, they are a, a, a load to handle when they're little. Um, so, you know, kind of moving through your questions here, you're talking about hanging weight and, um, selling that at $4 a pound for a whole or $5 a pound for a half. Personally, I don't do anything on hanging weight. I know a lot of guys do. Uh, I don't. The way we sell a whole hog to a family or a grocery store or a restaurant or whatever the case may be, we sell everything based on the live weight. And um, we do charge more for a half. Uh, it's not a uh, 20%, 25% premium, but there is a premium to, to buy it on, you know, on halves. Um, what I can tell you is that on a, on a whole hog, we're, we're around three bucks a pound live weight. You're talking about f- uh, $4 a pound uh, hanging weight. And you'll want to do your own research here and kind of check what I'm about to tell you. But I think a rule of thumb is that there's a, about 70% live weight to, to hanging weight. Um, so I, I think you're probably in the ballpark there, assuming all your costs look exactly like my costs. And that's not going to be the case. So, you know, it, is that price correct? Only you can determine that. Um your butchering not being included, we don't include it either. We, we, we educate people on what the cut selection process looks like, what their options are. We answer questions for them. But in the end, they have to turn in their cuts to the butcher. They have to pay those processing costs directly to the butcher when they pick up the order. So what, what you're suggesting there, that's exactly how we do it. Now, supplemental feed costs. Uh, I can tell you that out on pasture slash in the woods, um, you know, you probably want to plan on about two and a half to three pounds of grain per pound of gain live weight. The old rule of thumb was uh, four to one, but that was more if you're just raising them conventionally in a barn. So what we found is that we can cut that by about a third, raising them out on the land and moving them around and letting them forage for as much as they can. Um, so, but then again, going back to what you're selling them for, are you buying conventional feed? Are you buying organic feed? Are you buying transitional organic feed like I am? That's it's GMO free and chemical free, but it doesn't have the organic label. So it costs a lot more than conventional, but it's a lot cheaper than organic. You're going to have to plug all this into a spreadsheet. Right, one thing I've said on this show before, Excel never lies. And so long as you set your formulas up right, Excel is not going to lie to you. Um, I can't tell you, you know, what percentage of sales each of these costs are. Only you can determine that. But what I do is I put in all my costs. I figure out how much time I'm putting into each animal roughly over its lifespan. Um, and then my fixed costs like, you know, fuel and the minimal amount of energy we have for running, you know, well pump for water and the fence charger and all that good stuff. And it spits out a number and I want to pay myself a certain dollar amount per hour. Um, and that's just kind of how we do it. So you're going to have to plug all that into a spreadsheet and figure that out. Um, your other production costs, you didn't say if you have any infrastructure or fencing or yeah. I, so like, I assume you have nothing. 
since you didn't say otherwise, I don't want to assume you have anything. You're just getting started. So uh, you're going to have some portable electric fit, uh, fencing to use. I would suggest uh, something like uh, the, the hog fence from Premier Fence Company. Um, it's pretty inexpensive stuff. It's it's portable. Uh, I think that's a good thing to start with. You're going to have a portable solar energizer. You're going to have a garden hose um, for a drinker. There's actually a um, an article I did. I don't know, maybe a year or two ago on my website at DarbySimpson.com. That's the Piggy Drinking Deck. That's a, a kind of a, a semi-permanent yet portable way to to water them. Uh, take a look at that. I mean, that's pretty inexpensive. All these things are pretty inexpensive. And honestly, outside of your feed cost and your initial purchase price on the pigs, your production costs are pretty low. Um, is you know, six to seven months. Is that enough time? Absolutely. It absolutely is. You're probably going to be getting wiener pigs that are going to, I'm going to guess, maybe 40 pounds, something like that. Uh, in five months' time, you're going to have a very marketable pig, um, a real, you know, uh, just a quick thing here. You want to be targeting 250 to 300 pounds live weight. Uh, I've said this before, pigs are super efficient at gaining weight up to that point. Once you get past 300 pounds on most breeds, now, that wouldn't be true of a, a Tamworth or a large black or, you know, one of these niche uh, old heritage breed pigs. But on most breeds, like a Duroc, like a Berkshire, a Hampshire, something like that, um, you, you, it's super efficient at 250 to 300 pounds. After 300 pounds, we're on the downhill side of the bell curve. We, we want to unload them at that point. Um, and then also, you know, at 250 to 300 pounds, we've got a really nice looking pork chop and nice length on our bacon and it, it just, they're finished. They're done. Animals are done. So, uh, what we have found is that you can gain, uh, when the pigs are, are little, you know, the first couple of months, they might only put on like 30 pounds or so, but man, once they hit about, you know, 120 pounds, you're going to start putting on, you know, 40, 50 even up to 60 pounds a month of live weight in that last month, month and a half, we see our pigs gain two pounds per pig per day out on grass in the woods foraging. Uh, you know, all that just it helps helps cut the feed costs, and they really pack on the weight that last uh, one to two months. So six to seven months is is very good. Definitely want to try and get them done before you think you might have that first hard cold snap outside in Wisconsin with snow. The Achilles heel, so to speak, of a pig. They're just like us. It's a respiratory system. I mean, I've personally had pigs that were big, healthy, strong pigs raised outside. We have a, an early season uh, cold snap come in, get a few inches of snow, and they can catch pneumonia and go from being perfectly healthy to dead in about three or four days. So, uh, you don't want to start too early. Wait till it's good and you know warm, and maybe give them a little bit of shelter even outside. Um, but uh, just get them done before that real, real bad cold snap comes in. Uh, other concerns: um, your infrastructure, grain storage. Uh, five pigs, not too big of a deal. Bagged feed, you put it in your shed or put it in some 55 gallon drums or something like that. You know, keep it away from predators. Um, but how are you going to store that grain, especially as you start thinking about, you know, 120 pigs in a season? Uh, you're going to need grain bins. You're going to need a driveway that a bulk truck can drive in on and, and, and unload all that, that grain into these bulk bins. Um, how are you going to feed that many pigs out on pasture? You're going to want to look for some old hog feeders. Uh, you can find those pretty cheap on Craigslist. 
Uh, you may have to do a little bit of work to them, but you're going to want a, a, you know, a more efficient means of, you know, dumping a bunch of grain into a feeder, uh, so that it, it stores it all for you. It keeps it dry, clean, doesn't go to waste, things like that. Um, uh, training, if you're doing electric, I'm assuming, uh, how, where are you going to train these guys to? There's, again, there's another article on my website that talks all about training pigs to electric fence. You got to think about if you're doing this, you know, train, you know, you have them trained to electric fence. Well, you want a secure place to do that on the front end. Do you have an old barn you can do it in? Do you have a, a hard fenced area somewhere that you can set up electric fence inside of that? Two is one, one is none. Uh, so if you're training them to electric, if they break out of that, you know, when they get that first shock or two and you got something to stop them so they're not running all over your farm. Um, and then loading too is, is another thing. You know, how are you going to load these guys up? Do you have a livestock trailer? Do you have a, a loading corral? Um, like a, we use here that is a training slash loading area that we can move them into and out of and we're set up so that we can load them easily into a livestock trailer. Those are some of my concerns, but here's my biggest concern. Marketing. If you don't have any kind of a farming enterprise now, and you just want to go do a few hogs, trust me, you're going to be able to market them. 120 to 150 hogs, that is a lot of pork. Um, where are you going to sell all this? I mean, what's what's the long-term plan? Now, in Wisconsin, you got a, a pretty neat opportunity if you want to go this route, and that's Organic Valley. It's a farmer-owned cooperative. Uh, actually, Mark Shepard is like member number 26 or something in that cooperative. Um, you're selling everything at wholesale. But you've got a guaranteed buyer, but you have to be certified organic. So that would be an option for you. You know, I, I'm eight years into this. I could probably be doing more pork than I'm doing now based on demand, but we're doing about 75 pigs a year. And we've got a pretty big following. We've got a, a pretty big marketing list. And um, I tell you, if I, if to, to think about doing 150 hogs a year, man, that's, it's a lot of pork. So my biggest concern for you is marketing. Like, what's the long-term game plan? And I, I think this is where a lot of guys get tripped up. They can figure out the production side, and they can raise all this stuff. But if you don't have a long-term plan in place of how you're going to market this and who you're going to market it to and what that pricing looks like and having different avenues to market all this product, uh, you, just, you need to tread carefully and move slowly. That's that's a place you could really bite yourself if you're not careful. So anyhow, um, I, I hope that this, you know, answers some of your questions for you. gives you some, some things to think about. Um, we could literally spend, you know, two hours going through all this stuff and, and probably spend at least an hour of it on, on marketing, um, to, to really dial in everything and answer all your questions. But big thing, think about your, your, your big infrastructure stuff and, you know, just the, the how of your, how you're going to do all this and how you're going to get a livestock trailer to where the pigs are and how you're going to load them up. And, and then on, you know, the, the, the dollars and cents side, setting up that spreadsheet and figuring out what all your costs are and how much you want to pay yourself. Um, it just all depends. Your price might be high. It might be low, depending on your input costs. You just, you don't know what you don't know. And so you put it into a spreadsheet and let that spreadsheet tell you, um, that information. So anyway, hope this has been helpful. Um, to learn more about me, please visit my website at darbysimpson.com. have a, a bunch of free how-to articles out there on all different kinds of stuff pertaining to raising pastured poultry, uh, forest-raised pork, grass-fed beef, um, 
all those articles are free. You can sign up if you'd like to to subscribe to that blog. And anytime I post it, uh, something new, you'll get an email telling you it's out there. Um, also offer one-on-one consultation for those that want to go deeper. Uh, but the website really was set up as a result of these questions coming in from the TSP audience. Honestly, that's where the genesis of this website is from is because of you guys, the listeners, just trying to put some uh, completely free information out there to help people be successful and claim that little piece of liberty for themselves. So, David, thanks for the question. And as always, Uncle Jack, thanks for kicking it over to me. Take care. Yeah, Jack, this is uh, Tom calling with a question uh, getting about your opinion on the, which would be better. For soil conservation, you know, the new thing now is no-till, and, uh, you know, my local ag extension is talking about no-till with spraying uh, herbicides on the soil before things are planted. Uh, the alternative is to till the soil, and I was wondering what your opinion would be on a better option. You know, with tilling the soil, you're dealing with... Uh, loss of organic matter and uh, disruption of the microbes, but then the herbicides on there, uh, you're dealing with, uh, you know, basically carpet bombing the soil and killing all the the plants on there. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on what the best option is. So appreciate your comments. Thanks. Yeah, see, the problem is you have people that think conventionally trying to uh, change one aspect of what they do conventionally. So we still want to do everything exactly the same way, except how do we do it without tilling the soil? And along comes Monsanto and says, spray and kill. Well, the problem here is that a lot of the soil loss and soil erosion isn't actually the direct result of tilling. Now, the tilling's not good. If you've ever seen a field being tilled, uh, when it's tilled and turned over, you want it to be a certain amount of dry. Like right now, I got trenches. I need, I, I so need to run water lines. And I brought a little rototiller. Not to till with, but to make a, a, a loose pack where I can easily get a trench in to put a pipe, you know, two inches deep on my rocky ass property. And I can't really run that tiller effectively right now because it's just muddy. And you want it to like chop up the dirt and make it nice and fine so it comes out and you can do it, you know, you can, I'm also going to make micro swales or not even really micro swales, small size swales with it because it makes a perfect flat bottom ditch. It makes a perfect four inch deep swale and just with multiple passes you can make it four feet, five feet, six feet wide if you want to. So it, it has that application here, but I can't do it when everything is muddy. So you have to wait till the field is dry enough to till, and then when you till, you end up with all this dust flying air, and yet there's some loss there. It also causes a lot of death to the microorganisms by turning them over or whatever. But what's really the big problem is now you have this bare dirt field, and you plant all your crops in rows, and it takes a long time before the crop gets high enough to put shade back on the dirt. And during that time, every time a raindrop hits goes up in the air and it gets caught in the air and it blows away and and it also what happens is if you've ever looked at a field that's dirt after it rains and when it starts to dry up you see this really thin layer on the top it almost looks like muddy ice right and that's the that's the finest of the fine right that's your your silts 
And what happens is it all floats to the top. It's your lightest particles. And then when the next rain comes and water moves across the surface, it just takes it away. And then it floats up whatever else is beneath the surface that's the lightest. And then if next rain floats it away. You see how it works. It, it, it brings it to the surface, sediments on the top, and then either wind or other erosionary forces take it away from the field. So if we just spray and kill all of the weeds, we still end up with a dead field. And that action still happens. We still have massive amounts of erosion. Is it less? Yes, but it's still bad. So how might we do this? Well, <laughs> Fukuoka showed us how to do this in the One Straw Revolution. You plant things like clover that only get a few inches tall. And every annual crop that we grow gets way higher than that. Um, you do different spacings. You do polycultures. There's all kinds of things we can do. But there's other ways we can do this. We could go in and plant a winter grain crop. Wheat, barley, rye, any kind of a winter grain crop that'll stand through the winter, produce in the spring. Instead of just threshing the whole field out with a combine, you use a harvester that takes the top off the grains. So you get your rye or you get your wheat. This can be done mechanically, right? The, the best equipment to do it doesn't exist because no one's doing it this way. But it could be. It's not hard. It's not hard to basically build a combine that just takes the top off the wheat. All the wheat's the same height. You might miss a head or two, but it's not a big deal. So you go through and you combine. You take all the top off. Mechanical, annual. I mean, I'm trying to do this as close to what they want as possible, okay? To be able to do 400 acres of this. It's still not what I want to do, but it works better. Now, you drop down your seed of your next crop. You just go through with a mechanical seeder. Through. Then you go through with a roller. And you've got all these still, you know, these, the, the, the straw from your barley or your wheat. And you just roll it over gently so that the stem doesn't break. It just bends over. See? And then you have this great big mat of mulch. Beautiful straw-thatched mulch laying there on the ground. And what does your new crop do? It just pokes right through, comes up, because it's been advantaged to the disadvantage of everything else. And you harvest that crop, and you roll it. So maybe that crop is a corn crop. So you, you, you harvest it at cob height, and you could go through and you could harvest it. And what you do is you now the, all your, your straw from the former season is rotted, right? So you go through, and you, you harvest and seed at the same time your, your next winter crop. And all of your corn, other than the cobs itself you're harvesting for grain, go through a processor that basically turns them into mulch. And instead of using a silage, you put it right back on top of the grain that you've just harvested. That would be one way you could do it. And we could do this. There's a million permutations of that technique that could be done. But the truth is these vast areas of land would be better off in civil pasture tree crops And their main product should be meat. They should be grazed. The savanna ecosystem is the most productive in the known world. There is no ecosystem that produces more output sustainably than a savanna ecosystem. What we do with annual agriculture is we try to mimic a prairie with annuals. There's never been a stable prairie based on annuals. 
in a monocultured, stable prairie base. I mean, it's impossible. So you're taking an ecosystem. A, a prairie ecosystem over time evolves into a savanna, right? So you're trying to take a system that's designed to evolve, prevent it from evolving, and not even make it stable in its native state by killing everything. It's it's better, but it's still awful. It's so awful that it's really not that much better at all. So it's like saying, well, would you prefer that we drive lawnmowers over all these babies to kill them or that we just hit them in the head with a club and kill them all in one shot instead of having them chopped up slowly and what have you. And obviously... Right, like as cruel as both of those things are, and as sadistic and twisted as they are, the club would be a more merciful death. But they're still both like these horrible things that should never be done. That's what you have when you start saying we're going to do no-till with herbicide and understand what it really is. It's greenwashing. It's a way for a company like Monsanto or Conagra to say, look at our environmentally friendly practices while well, we kill everything. That's all that it is. Better, but still awful. Step in the right direction? Not at all. The problem with all these so-called steps in the right directions is their attempts to maintain the screwed-up system that we have rather than an attempt to evolve that into a more sophisticated system. See, that's what people don't understand. They think that when, when we advocate for things like you know uh, re regenerative agriculture, right, that... We are advocating a primitive system. What we're actually advocating is a far more advanced, far more scientific, far more based on reality, more sophisticated system of providing for our needs. A system based on chestnuts and apples and plums in an overstory and shrub crops and animal products is so much more advanced than a field of corn. It, it's, it's like comparing a PhD to a kindergartner. And then we're called regressives, right? Like, like, like we're trying to go back to the Stone Age or something. No, I'm trying to go into the, you know, like the 23rd century here with food production. These animal based systems are just more productive. They regenerate themselves. And they don't ever require tilling, except maybe an establishment. That doesn't mean we don't ever use something like a plow. You know, we might take a, a one-hook, like, plow and go along our tree rows every year to root prune them so they don't only go so far into the pasture. I mean, there's a lot of, like, uses of these mechanical tools, but drawing one hook through the ground in one line along a key line doesn't harm anything. It actually makes the soil better. And in 10 years, you turn clay into 11 inches of topsoil by doing this. So... Again, that's that's my take on this. Let's take a uh, another question. Jack, yeah, just listening to your insurrection versus revolution show earlier in the week. It was very good. Enjoyed it. Um, can you clarify uh, your feelings on uh, driving while impaired charges or uh, sometimes called driving under the influence, uh, whatever, uh, depending on the state or jurisdiction, how that uh, jives or how it doesn't with a uh, – libertarian, uh, minarchist, anarchist-type perspective. If you just share your feelings, appreciate it. And note to the community, even if you think you 
know what you're going to ask. It really does help to write the question down. Um, this is the second time I'm calling. Apologies to Jack for having to sort through a call that shouldn't have been called. Thank you. Bye. Well, you, 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 what you end up with, as always, as this, well, how would we? What would we do? And again, I will always come back to one of those questions that are posed is, is any type of way of objecting to anything from libertarianism to minarchism to anarchism is, well, we won't know how to solve that problem until we're given the opportunity to solve that problem. But I'm already seeing things. So instead of saying, like, well, what do we do about people that drive drunk? Why don't we ask the question, why do people drive drunk? What makes people drunk drive? Like, do you think most people really think to themselves, you know what I want to do? I want to get shit-faced. And then I want to go haul an ass down the road and kill myself or somebody else. Right? And so, not why does anybody do it? So, Because here's the thing. If you start to look at the law and the law preventing things, you have to realize that the majority of people that do shit that's really stupid do it in spite of the law. Right? The majority of people that comply with the law don't comply with the law out of fear. Right? They comply with the law out of like, yeah, that makes sense. We, I mean, we talked about this with, with, you know, the podcast I did that, that leads toward anarchism with insurrection. Like, it, it, I don't not cross a busy street against oncoming traffic because it's jaywalking. I don't do it because I don't want to die. Okay? So I don't, You know, it's not just that I won't drive if I'm actually drunk because I don't want a DUI, but also because I don't want to get in a wreck or hurt somebody. And I know that if I'm impaired, that that is a greater possibility. Now, let me speak to some reality before we go forward to how we would fix it. So here's some reality. Number one, I say this all the time when I'm with people where I know drinking is going to go on. I ask them the question, do you know what's less expensive than a DUI? And they're like, well, this and that. I'm like, the answer is every other option, sleeping in your car, calling a limousine, staying in a different hotel that happens to be walking distance from where you are, um, calling a helicopter to land you on the roof of your hotel or on the street of your, your home will cost you less than a DUI. If you're even close, if you're even not sure, don't do it. Right? And that actually shows that the law sort of kind of works, right? But what does it work for? It works for people that probably could drive just fine. And this, this crap where we keep lowering the blood alcohol number has taken what was a good intention. See, this is what always happens with the state. It's a good intention. People are just driving around drunk, and unless they hit or kill somebody, you know, we, they, there's no recourse. We have to have, like, the, the, you can't just be drunk and drive, right? So they put a law in place, and they come up with a number, a number that everybody looks at and goes, yeah, you're kind of shit-faced if you're at that number, And then, well, you know what? It's just not enough. We need to lower it and lower it. And now we have this .08. It doesn't take much to get to .08. And I, I know there's a lot of people out there that could probably be driving around at that level and be far safer than a lot of people totally sober just because they're better drivers. You get into this weird, like, who can drive this way? And, who, and it's, it's, it's arbitrary now, this number. And we have people now advocating, you know, .08 is not strict enough. We need to bring that down to .04. 
Okay, at .04, that means you have a beer, you're DUI. This is becoming an extraction model to destroy lives by the state. So the law we have is in some ways moderately effective and in some ways an extraction model. And I've seen some libertarians say we should just remove all DUI laws whatsoever and then drunk people will drive really slow with their four-ways on so we can see them. Yeah, I, I'd like to believe that. And I think in a responsible society, drunk people probably would do that if they felt no other choice but to drive. Right? I mean, they were actually watched a, a, a Dumb Criminals where a guy got pulled over, and that's what he was doing. He had his four-ways on. He was driving about 15 miles an hour on the way home. He was like a half mile from his house. And he asked the cop, asked him, why you're doing this? He said, I'm really drunk and I want everybody to stay away from me. So, of course, they arrested him. Well, it was probably irresponsible, but it was probably more responsible than faking it, right, and pretending that he was okay. So there's a piece of that they sort of has. But, again, why do people drive drunk? Think about it. Why, was a, why would a person who knows I really probably shouldn't do this do it? Part of it's ego, right, and egos need to be checked. But another part of it is I got to go wherever I got to go. And my car is going to be stuck here and all. So, you know, I talked about Uber and that. So if it costs less to get home and leave your car somewhere, would you? Um, there is a, a service in Dallas called Wingman where a guy has a little moped, fold-up one, small, tiny one. And he comes out, puts his moped in your trunk, And then he drives you home with your car, so your car will be there in the morning. So that's the other reason people do this. I have to have my car. I can't leave my car here. So if we start actually asking that question, and instead of saying, only if we eliminate drunk driving are we successful, and say, how do we address the concern as a society? How do we reduce the amount of drunk driving and accept the fact that some people are idiots and will behave like idiots? Then we'd be far better off. People say, well, that's you know fantasy thing. Well, hold on. Does the law that's currently in place that clearly destroys the lives of some people who weren't going to hurt anybody prevent drunk driving entirely? Is there because of the laws there are now a hundred percent no drunk driving? Well, the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely, positively not. And it's actually hard to make a case. There's a significant lower amount of actually risky drunk driving than there was before. Like, if you go back to the statistics from 1960, when the laws were very lapsed, and today, and don't just look at it from a standpoint of who drove drunk at all, but how many people actually kill other people or seriously injure other people due to alcohol consumption, and you factor in things like there's more cars now and everything else, it's hard to make... And, and all the other safety aspects. How much safer a car is today? So, yeah, less people die because of drunk drivers today. But less people die in wrecks today. You, you understand that, right? Airbags, seatbelts, all these other things. Well, there's laws for those. But no, it's not the law that you have to wear a seatbelt that makes a seatbelt work. A seatbelt makes a seatbelt work. It, it's not a policy that we have to have airbags that makes an airbag work. It's air that makes an airbag work. So the point is that all of these innovations and technologies that come along allow for us to adapt and get better, not perfect. See, that, that's the problem is so many people let perfect be the enemy of the good when the system they have is so far from good, it's pathetic. So 
with Uber, for instance, which again is a transportation service. If I if I'm a member of Uber, I pay. I don't even know exactly. I got to figure out how this works, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't. I haven't used it. I've just watched other people use it. There's a website. I create credits or something for myself, and I'm at a place where Uber has service, and I just make a phone call or send a text message or some shit, and all of a sudden I get a confirmation. Hey, a car's coming from you. This is who it is. This is the kind of car it is, and people can review him. So I know he's not an axe murderer. See, the state doesn't have to give him a license. The state can give you a license to be a cab driver, and that's a facade that you're a safe person to do business with. Because there's no guarantee that you're not an axe murderer just because you have a taxi license. Seriously, think about that, right? But And what do I know about my driver other than the state gave him a piece of paper and a company gave him a job? But if I'm with Uber, I know who this guy is. I know his name before he gets there. I know the car he's driving. And I can look at other passengers, like if there's any, any problems with them, like, this guy sucks, I can see that. So the only thing that prevented something like that from happening sooner was government. So most people, if they had somebody to drive for them when they know they shouldn't be driving, would let them. Well, some people won't. Well, they will do. See, it's the same argument that people make. See, and the people that like are like, oh, this can't possibly work. Most of you guys that listen to the show are advocates of gun, uh, of gun ownership, okay? And you say when somebody says, but we need a law to prevent people from shooting people with guns. Listen, that won't work. People that will shoot people with guns will do so whether there's a law about possessing the gun or not. They're, they're clearly willing to violate the law by shooting somebody. So the law doesn't stop the actual criminal from committing the criminal offense, It only leads to a recourse once the offense is committed. Uh-huh. So the person driving down the road who's above an arbitrary number and half a block from his house that gets pulled over and a cop that needs his quota has him blowing a tube and it says .09 and the streets are dead empty. And that cop now can't use his judgment because everything's been recorded up to this point. And he can't just say, dude, just go home. I'm going to watch you pull in. And the cop's dead shit afraid because in our litigious society, if that guy pulls in his driveway, the cop watches him go in his house and says, okay, I did the right thing. I wasn't a dick. This guy wasn't going to hurt anybody. Hopefully he'll think better next time. And the cop goes away, and the guy goes in his house and says, you know what? The cop's gone. I wasn't coming home. I, I was out of money. So he goes into his drawer, pulls out a wad of hundreds, and heads back out to the titty bar or something, gets fired up drunk, he gets in a wreck later that night, and anybody finds out that the cop let him go, the, 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 the law enforcement agency and the cop himself are looking at a lawsuit. And the jackass that got let go could get a lawyer and say, you should have never let me go. I was too impaired to know, but you were supposed to. See, all of it just cascades when we have all of these laws the result in the imprisonment and punishment of a person who has yet to harm anyone. So my belief is that we could actually develop a variety of solutions that would not utopically eliminate all drunk driving, but would reduce it to levels that are lower than what we already have. And the people that are truly impaired will almost always behave in some sort of a reckless way. And that might be an offense. 
If you're driving on the wrong side of the road, even if you don't hit anybody, yeah, uh, you're not, you know, come on. We have some level of common sense. And the truth is, like, these are just ideas. If we actually had to fix this problem, we might get a lot better ideas about how to do it. I believe it won't matter in 20 years. I believe it will not matter in 20 years. I believe in 20 years you'll get into your car, you'll type in GPS where you want to go, and your car will drive you there. Oh, that's fantasy. No, it's not. No, it's not. And and you will order your, your fast food, and the car will swing. So you'll have your drunken bender, right? <laughs> and you, I want a taco. Uh, I need a jack-in-the-box. I want four tacos and a Coke, and they take me home. And your car will drive you to Jack in the Box. Jack in the Box will already have your order. Give your drunk ass your tacos, and you will go home and get in your bed and go to sleep. So I think we might already have that technology if government wasn't so over-regulatory in the first place. So again, what we have to understand, though, this is the key with all of these concepts of libertarianism, minarchism, anarchism is that the goal isn't perfection because all of these raw rules and laws have not given us perfection. We still have killers, we still have murderers, we still have psychopaths, we still have people that drive like all jacked up drunk, not people that are .081, right? Oh, you're one-tenth of one-thousandth of one point over an arbitrary number that we just pulled out of our ass. Let's destroy your life. Right? No, not that guy. The guy that is going to be an idiot is going to be an idiot, law or no law, and should be held accountable for his idiocy, not some arbitrary number we made up, and we should seek to address the problem. And I challenge you, every time you find ways, like, how would we do this? How would we do this? Ask ourselves not how would we, but why is there a problem in the first place? And how do we address the problem at its core versus how do we force people to do what we think is right? Anyway, let's take another call. I wanted to know kind of what the role fire has in, uh, with respect to permaculture management. Uh, you know, I'm driving through the Flint Hills here, and everybody's burning their their prairie grass. Uh, you know, it's all perennial uh, tall grass prairie. And so I just kind of wondered if, if there was room for, for fire in, in permaculture or if we just let animals take over or, or whatnot. Uh, thanks. Appreciate it. So what we would ask ourselves is, is fire a natural element in a natural system? And the answer to that would be yes. In fact, there's there are seeds that are fire plants. They are specifically designed to repair and to evolve a landscape forward after fire. And there are people that want those seeds to germinate, but they don't want to use fire for whatever reason. Like they don't want to destroy what's there, but they want to encourage these other plants as part of a restorative process. And what they will actually do is spread ashes on a field at an appropriate time to trick those seeds that are laying there dormant into believing a fire has occurred so they will germinate. And that could be done with fire. It could be done with pseudo-fire in this case. We also have to look at the standpoint of are there times when ecosystems kind of need a reset? And the answer is yes. That's one of the ways nature does it is with fire. So does fire have an application? Yes. Is fire being applied appropriately when I go, I got too much prairie grass, let's set the whole prairie on fire? And no, no, no. Uh, but 
I've talked about these amazing food production systems that issue, existed all throughout North America. Massive chestnuts, hazelnuts in the understory, uh, all these different native fruit trees like pawpaws and mulberry and stuff. And we got here, and this forest wasn't this tangled mass. It was this mature overstory, and then these big glades, and then these like natural agricultural systems existing within them. And it's it's only recently that we've really understood that by looking at soil and the composition. See, when you burn something, you can look at the soil a hundred years later and see there was a fire there. Uh, the certain way that the, the sand crystals will begin to turn to glass, for instance, and clay will harden and never go back to what it was. So you can say there was a fire here. And when we look at this, and we look at the footprints of fire in these, these, these forest primevals, we realize there's no way nature would burn such controlled spaces at, in such controlled time intervals. The, the native peoples had to be using fire. But they weren't using it for slash-and-burn agriculture. Slash-and-burn agriculture is I go in and there's a forest. Now, I don't burn the forest down. The trees are too... See, that's what people think. Well, you burn the forest down. No, I cut the forest down. I stump out all the trees, right? So I got all these stumps now. And I've taken all the timber away, and I've hacked off all the parts of the trees that are unusable, and I lay them there and let them dry. And I wait until a dry time when all of the bushes have gone, and shrubs and all the vines and all the tangle has gone dormant, and then I set flame to that field. And that gets rid of most of what was there. And then I go in and I put it in annual agriculture. And I and then I get, when you do that, it, it's not that it doesn't work. It works like crazy for the first year. And it works damn good for the second year. And it works okay for the third year. And it sort of fizzles, and it's about the seventh year where... Unless you're dumping chemical fertilizers, it just doesn't work anymore. So like a locust with slash and burn agriculture, this place doesn't work anymore. I'll go here and do it again. Same way we do deserts. Irrigate the desert, salt the land, move on. Same locust pattern of humanity. Except unlike the locust, nature has a much harder time recovering from the damage we do. Like the locust is almost like flying fire. It comes in. Wipes out an area, and the next year, boom, it blows back, and the locusts are gone for 18, 20, 18 years and 28 years or something like that, right? There's this huge gap between these cycles of locusts, right? Almost like nature knows what it's doing again with these cycles of burn and regrow and burn and regrow, all right? So what you have people doing with burning these prairie grasses is the, the concept of It's just easier than tilling. It's easier than cutting them. It's easier. I'll get them out of the way so I can grow what I want. Versus a regenerative system that uses fire in specific applications. So a, a way that a, a permaculture system might be managed with this is you might be managing, let's say, a thousand acres. And we might go in and decide this is kind of a, this, this system has this area of 50 acres is gone to climax and is in decline. The trees are hundreds of years old and they're now dying of their own accord. And some of these mature trees might have hundreds of years left. So we'll protect them. We'll timber out the mature trees that are not going to be here for another 30, 40 years. They're done. And we'll get the highest quality timber you can imagine out of these trees. We'll take the organic debris and all of it that's usable in any way we'll use it. We'll protect the mature trees that are still 
got, you know, 50 years or more of life in them. We need timber from somewhere. And we'll burn this area and we'll trigger the system to take 200, 300, 400 years of, of this accumulation of all these seeds that are fire seeds and we'll cause them to generate and to grow. And then we'll go back in and we'll, we'll, we'll put this system into a secession state of accelerated secession and bring it back to climax again. And then we might rotate through this thousand acres of management and we might be doing a 50 acre controlled burn way in the future or right at the beginning every 20 or 30 years. And that's what natives did on a, a mega scale. Again, as a horticultural society, these guys were managing millions of acres like this with no fences and borders. There might have been some tribal borders and recognized territories. Um, but most of the natives in this continent were living a very anarchist society. That's really what they were doing. Um, and you, you hear about, like, well, the, the, the Apaches and the Comanches and the war and the ruthlessness and all, but a lot of that stuff really kind of came along with us uh, when they were given the horse and they had the mobility of the horse because they didn't have that before we got here and the gun and, and the mentality that, that we brought as conquerors with us and turning certain groups into allies. And, you know, the French-Indian War were the French and the natives fighting against the colonialists and we instituted the whole scalping policy and stuff like that. So the, the, the truth is that a, a great deal of our, our constitution and our declaration of independence uh, coming from the mind of Thomas Jefferson and others that he was uh, using for inspiration came from different places. And one was what was called the Great Law of Peace, which was part of uh, a group of, of tribes in the northeastern United States that, that believed in individual sovereignty. And it went hand in hand with this style of ecosystem management. And, and that's what enables it on a massive scale an understanding of common lands and, and 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 common good and an understanding that in a world of abundance you don't have to fear whether you're going to eat tomorrow because there's a tree that every year produces more chestnuts than an entire village could need and there's millions of them and that that, that is sort of kind of a fantasy today not that it can't be done but that it will be done and everybody's sitting on five acres here and 500 acres there and 5,000 acres here and a quarter acre here, it's a lot more difficult. But fire can still be used in those systems. But just like I tell you why, you know why you believe what you believe, with permaculture, you really need to know why you're doing what you're doing. And not just with fire with everything, but it puts whales in. Why? Well, you did, but I knew why I was doing it. Where's the swell going to go from where to where and what's the purpose of it? What is the function in your design? I'm going to do culture. Why? Right? You've got to be almost like a little kid. Right? Why? Like my, my, my grandson, Braylon. Why? It's time to go home now. Why? Right? It gets, uh-huh. But with design and with technique and, and management practices, if you can't answer the why, think a little longer before you do. Let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. My name's Adam from Northern California, and I have a question for Chef Keith Snow. Keith, um, I've got an old frying pan that I'm trying to restore, and I looked online and found a couple of different methods, and one of them involves using uh, easy-off oven cleaner, putting them in a bag for a couple of days, and then using a solution to neutralize the oven cleaner, scraping them off, and then reseasoning. And I'm wondering if you're familiar with a method similar to that or if you have one that you prefer. Uh, and also, uh, if you have any ideas for how to spot good cast iron when going to yard sales and uh, thrift stores, if you have any thoughts on that, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Um, I have a lot to say on this, but I'm going to say as little as possible and let Chef Keith Snow answer this question and give you maybe a few little tidbits uh, after that. And then we've got a couple questions for Steve Harris, and we'll roll right into those. Hey, Adam, it's Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. Want to answer your question about cast iron cookware. Uh, it's a great question, and um, I love cast iron, so I'm happy to answer this for you. Um, when you're trying to find cast iron cookware used, the, the good places to find it, in my opinion, are flea markets and yard sales or garage sales. Oftentimes, folks will take um, pieces that just look a little worn or may have some rust, and sometimes you can get these things for super cheap. I mean, I've bought them for a dollar at uh, big flea markets, and there were multiple pieces at multiple different vendors, so I was able to buy a few, and I like finding the ones that are kind of rusted out, and they look they look bad because you can get them pretty cheap. Um We'll talk about fixing them up in a minute. But some of the brands you want to look for that are good ones, Wagner is an excellent one, Griswold. Um, you'll find other ones, Volrath. There's a lot of different brands, Atlanta Stove Works, uh, and, of course, Lodge, which has been making cast iron. And they're, they're the only ones left, as far as I know, making cast iron in the United States. Over a 100 years uh, in Tennessee making cast iron cookware. And they make some great products. So I wouldn't... Um, shy away from those. Now, um, when you're buying them, you can, again, find them at flea markets or garage sales. Sometimes you can get some good stuff off of eBay, but a lot of times the people know how rare they're becoming and you'll pay too much. Same thing if you go to like antique stores. Um, they understand that, you know, a good Wagner cast iron pan is somewhat rare and you could pay 50 bucks for it. So you have to be careful where you get them. Now, um, one time I did buy an excellent piece from a company called Yodel, J-O-T-U-L, and they're famous. They're from Scandinavia. They make cast iron wood stoves and um, enameled cast iron, uh, all different types, and they're excellent quality stoves. My in-laws in Colorado uh, happen to own a Yodel stove, and, and it's tremendous. And uh, incidentally, those are great to buy used and old too. Um, but anyway, I bought off of eBay a Yodel cast iron pan and it was uh, kind of divided i guess they would make biscuits in it but it had the little circles and um i use it to make uh silver dollar pancakes and it's great once it's nothing sticks to it i've got it well seasoned and once it heats up you turn the heat down and it holds a beautiful steady heat and i just can whip off i think it's five at a time five silver dollar type pancakes and they're about three inches in diameter and uh, that piece was cheap i think i bought it for ten dollars on ebay but it's hard to find good ones um, that aren't too expensive. You can find them, but sometimes you'll pay too much. Now, so you've you've found one. Now, what to do with it? Now, I recently, well, recently, I guess it was 2012, seems like yesterday, how time flies. I found a cast iron 
um, not a skillet, but like an oval, an oval skillet. And it has a long handle, um, excellent pan for cooking omelets and eggs in. Really, really great. And this one was beat, man. It was just rusted out. I think I paid like a dollar fifty for it. It had a little piece of masking tape on it with, I think they were, they wanted like three dollars for it. And I said, how about a dollar fifty? And nah, fine. So what I do, um, I definitely don't use Easy Off or any oven cleaners like you mentioned in your call. Um, I just prefer to take steel wool. So I'll take a very um, coarse steel wool and, first of all, I'll, I'll wet it, you know, put it in water, and then steel wool as much as I can get off of it. And then I'll take sand and a very stiff wire brush, and be careful with those. Um, try to use stainless steel wire brushes, but you can really do damage to your hands if you poke yourself with one of those. But using some sand and a wire brush, you can get a lot of the rust off of it, and then just keep rinsing it. And remember, it's going to want to rust pretty quickly being wet, so keep that in mind. But uh, sand, also salt, but that's a little expensive. Salt is a good abrasive, but sand is very abrasive. And with the um, stainless steel brush like that, you can get most of the, the gook off of it. Another thing I've done is take an electric drill, not a cordless drill because they tend to wear out a little bit, but I've taken my electric drill and put a wire brush attachment in there. And then with a little bit of wet sand, you can really take it down to the to the bare cast iron. I've done a great job with those. I took a pan that, man, I actually left the thing outside. This is when I used to live in North Carolina. Get a lot of cold rain and ice and stuff like that. I left it outside all winter because I wanted to see uh, what would happen to it. I just left it sitting out on a rock uh, out in the open. And uh, that thing was good and rusted by the time the spring came around. And I did just what I'm telling you, but the thing that was really great was the uh, electric drill cranked up high. I just took a pair of heavy gloves and really got in there and all the corners, the, the backs, the sides, the handle, and I got it down to the bare metal. Um, then I took it into the kitchen, rinsed it off really well, and I took a like one of those green scrubber pads <clears throat> with soap and um, scrubbed it really clean. And once it was really clean, at that point... What I did was dry it off, and then I get to the seasoning part. And I'll just uh, go through this real quick because a lot of you out there are unsure. Now, the best thing to use for seasoning is just plain old Crisco. And that's stuff uh, that I don't cook with. But the only reason I keep it on hand is to do this. And you could use lard as well. Um, but what you want to do is put a cast, not a cast, a aluminum sheet pan in your oven. So put it down on the bottom of your oven, turn your oven on 350 degrees and take your cast iron piece that's been washed carefully and dried and rub it liberally. Just use your fingers with Crisco and you want to get the cooking surface, the sides, the bottom, the handle, everywhere there's cast iron. And then you want to take it and you put it, once the oven's preheated to 350, you'll put it in there inverted so the cooking surface is facing the aluminum um, sheet pan you have underneath it. Because a lot of stuff is going to drip, well, some stuff will drip off of there and it can make a big mess if you don't catch it. So you put it in there and you cook it for one hour. When one hour comes, turn the oven off, leave the pan in there, let it cool down to room temperature um, inside of the oven. Then take it out. And what I like to do is um, take like a paper towel and put it under some warm water. Um, 
just give it a, a rub off. No, no soap at this point, but just some warm water and a paper towel. Rub it, dry it again, and then I'll coat it with more Crisco, making sure there's no moisture on it. Coat it with more Crisco. Do the same thing again. Sometimes I'll do it three times. And of course that takes, you know, about three, it takes about an hour and 20 minutes each time for that thing. Maybe even an hour and a half for it to um, heat, to cook at 350 for an hour and then to cool down so you can handle it. And each time you do that, you're building a layer of kind of non-stickness into the pan. And once you do that, you can get a pan that's every bit, sometimes even more non-stick than excellent non-stick cookware. And by the way, uh, over at HarvestEating.com in the resource section, there's a list of the um, non-stick cookware that I recommend, and there's not many, but there are a couple of brands. But the uh, cast iron that's well-seasoned is awesome. I mean, you can put eggs, which are notorious for wanting to stick. You crack eggs, a little bit of butter, crack an egg, uh, omelets, and, and it's just virtually stick-free, which is wonderful. The thing to worry about is a lot of people will... They do take a little extra care, these these type of pans, but when they're hot like that, that's the time you put your eggs on your plate and then take the skillet over to the sink. And what I do is I buy from Lodge. They've got, it looks like a potato brush, but it's actually like a skillet brush. And it's just a wooden handle and it's got, um, I don't even know what it's made out of, but it's great for scrubbing the pans off. So when it's good and hot, I turn the faucet on hot water, and I'll put it underneath there with that scrub brush and just give it a light brush off. Not too hard. You don't want to scrape off your coating, and you definitely don't want to use any soap because that can dissolve. Soap dissolves fat, and it can take your nonstick surface off of there. So once you give it a good rub down, um, let it dry off, and you want it to be completely dry. Sometimes I'll just put a burner on low, put it on there, and let it warm up for a minute or two and then turn it off. It will dry it and it will cool off. And you can even put a little more, you can put a little cooking spray on it or another dab of lard or Crisco and rub it in when the pan is, you know, maybe just room temperature and store it. If you do that and you keep it well seasoned, they're, they're excellent. And they basically, they're lifetime type pans. So uh, those of you that are on a budget that, you know, can't afford Good you know, French copper. I mean, I've got a lot of French copper, and the stuff is ridiculous. Three hundred dollars for a little, you know, a little skillet. Does it cook well? Sure, it does. But for the price, uh, it's you know, it's ridiculous. I, I uh, they, they were given to me. I would never spend that kind of money, even though I do find it worth it. I probably, you know, I wouldn't do it. I'd just go for some cast iron. I, I own a lot of cast iron. And uh, it's excellent to cook all different types of uh, dishes in. So hopefully that. Um, Answers your question, Adam. Look for the brands Griswold, Wagner, Lodge. Um, clean it the way I mentioned. Season it the way I mentioned. And you will have a uh, a great pan for a long, long time. And I just want to encourage all of you out there in TSP land to call in some questions. I love uh, helping you guys out whenever I can. And as always, do check out my site, HarvestEating.com. I know tons of you out there are subscribed to the podcast. I wanted to give you all a big shout-out. Thanks for listening and supporting Harvest Eating uh, and also supporting what Jack does there at the Survival Podcast. Jack, thanks. Adam, thanks. Take care, everyone. I'll give you my short version of everything and some additional things you might want to think about. So first of all, I will not buy a completely jacked-up piece of old cast iron unless it is a unique piece. Like Chef Keith and I talked about, some of those pieces are kind of unique. They're hard to find. You don't see them often. 
Uh, so if I find that, like I bought one I'm still working on a little bit. It's a really deep pot style with lid that's really like something you might fry chicken in, like deep fry. And it was like, I've never seen one before, and it was old as hell, and the handle was actually brazewelled back onto the body because it had been busted off, and whoever owned it valued it enough to do that. And it was pretty jacked up. And I just looked at it and thought, it, I, I always go, when I see an antique mall or something like that, I go in to see what's there, and I always look for cast iron. And I thought in years, and I was actually helping our, our house guests at the time find some cast iron for themselves. I had never seen one like this. And I went, I want that. So I'm willing to deal with it being jacked up. So I bought it jacked up. And then uh, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Usually, again, like Keith said, using like an abrasive pad or something and taking the surface rust off. You can get down far enough. You don't have to do anything else radical. Um, Paul Wheaton suggests, and he's got a great article I'll link to on, on all of this. Throw that sucker in a self-cleaning oven. And just take it for a ride in there and just burn everything off of it. And if there's some that are that bad, that's, that's kind of a good thing to do. Um, my tactic is actually, though, I don't want to buy something that needs that done to it. And if you go to enough antique malls and all with skillets and things, you'll often find stuff that what it looks like is Grandma had it and uh, used it for years. And it's got a beautiful finish on it. And there's a little sticky goo on it and maybe it's a little service rust and stuff like that. And what happened is Grandma died and it was put in a bin somewhere. And sooner or later, somebody went along and went, yeah, let's get rid of all this old stuff Grandma had and dumps it. And it ends up in an antique mall or whatever. You know what I do with those? I bring them home. I clean them with soap and water. I put lard on them and I start heating them up. And I heat lard into them and I wipe them down and I heat lard two or three times of that and I start cooking with them. That's it. And cooking makes it better. And it restores, and you don't have to start from scratch. That's my number one way. And you know what? It doesn't cost any more, in general, to buy one that's in good shape than to buy one that's in poor shape. Now, you might get five bucks less, but by the time you spend all the money on the additional amount of fat that you need, lard, and time and energy, you would be better off buying the one that's already in better shape. So I'll only buy one totally jacked up. There's a lot of the old, and now the big difference is the way cast iron is made. In the past, there were different grades, and what you're looking for is a smooth cast iron. Modern cast iron has these beads on them. And you can season them, and they'll work good, and they work pretty good, but they will never be the way they used to be milled. And I don't know anyone that makes them milled that way anymore. Where when you, even when they're, when they're stripped down, when you run your hand across them, food might stick to it, but the surface is smooth. Instead of that like little pellety, sandy, because it's cast in sand. That's how they do it. So now it's cast in sand and all the little imperfections of the sands there, and you're trying to build up a polymer on it. I do disagree with one thing Keith said. I am not afraid to use soap and water on my cast iron. I think that is a myth, a myth, a myth. It's a myth! Right? Now, you don't go getting like a Brillo pad or like that copper shit and start scrubbing the shit out of your cast iron. Once you've put a good seasoning on your cast iron, the, the fat is only on the surface. As you cook, the fat, it's called polymerization. Polymer. It actually becomes a polymer. It binds at a molecular level. It's not coming off with soap and water unless you use an abrasive. Now, it doesn't mean I stick it in a soapy uh, sink and let it soak. What it means, if there's a little bit of goo on there that doesn't want to come off, what I do is I heat it up, I stick it under the faucet, I let, the, I let it sizzle off, 
dump some water in it, and whatever releases, releases. I might grab, um, not a Brillo pad, but like uh, the sponges that have the little bit of abrasiveness, and, and scrub that stuff off. It doesn't mess anything up. It's a myth. Polymers don't come off with soap. And when you properly season a pan, whether the people that did it at the time knew the word or not, it's a polymerization process. So I'm not really contradicting Keith or anything. I just think a lot of people don't know this. You believe what you've been taught, and you think that any soap touching it will ruin it, but you don't wash off a polymer with soap. Now, when you're first working on it, if you had to strip it down, it's a long time before you build up that polymerized surface. And at that point, you really want to avoid soap and water, if at all possible. And please remember, those of you like, I don't like, and I don't use soap and water unless I need to, okay? Unless there's someone who just doesn't want to come loose because I've gotten a little bit aggressive with my cooking. I get something sticky and gooey that kind of binds up. And the soap releases that. That's why you would use it. But for those that are like, I, I don't want to clean this thing with just water. I mean, it's nasty and dirty. You don't eat out of it. When you go to cooking it again, you heat it up. Hundreds of degrees. Any little bugaboo that's in there, you incinerate him. Right? You boil water, you kill just about anything that could harm you. That's 212 degrees. It's almost inconceivable that you're going to cook something in a cast iron skillet below 212 degrees. So it's not a concern. Anyway, I added a lot more than I planned on. But again, check out Paul Wheaton's article. Take Chef Keith's advice. Take my advice. Do what works for you. My big advice, though... Don't buy jacked up cast iron unless the piece is so unique that it warrants it. Because I generally spend $20 to $25 on an old school Griswold or other really in almost good enough shape to just use right away. And a large cast iron number 12 skillet on Amazon is like $30. So you're buying something that's going to last the rest of your life and your kid's life. Don't cheap. Don't make your life hard over five to ten dollars. Let's take another one. Jack Brent in Prince Edward Island. Does eating sprouted grains count as paleo? I've just started sprouting some wheat berries, and I've sprouted some buckwheat groats. And I know buckwheat is not uh, a grain; it's actually related to rhubarb. But I'm wondering if paleo uh, people or uh, you as yourself, do you eat sprouted grains at all? Thanks. Bye. So I'm not really good at impersonating other people's voices, especially with a strained voice. And I, I wish I could do it, but I won't even try. But think of the Dose Keys guy, right? I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I drink Dose Keys. That's not true with me. I think Dose Keys is a, that's okay. I'll drink it when there's nothing else. Um, but when, I don't always eat grains, but when I do, I eat sprouted grains. I wish I could say that like the Dose Keys guy. And I wish I could tell you it was 100% true. Occasionally I eat sourdough and uh, other things, but and I'll eat a tortilla. I mean, it's it, because it's thin and there's less of it, you know, it, it's, it's not that it's good for you. It's just less of the toxic substance you're putting in your body. But the reality is a sprouted grain is, is far better uh, for you than a, a grain as it is. And it, it, is it paleo? It depends. As I said in my article, what is a paleo diet? There's no pope of paleo. I mean, you might ask Gary Collins if it's paleo, and he might say, yeah. And you might ask um, Rob Wolf, and he might say, yeah, or no. I don't know what either one of them would say, honestly. Uh, Lauren Cordain might have a different approach. And, you know, I have a different answer. And it's it, it's all about it depends. And it also depends to me, well, how sprouted is sprouted? How sprouted is sprouted? So if I sprout a, a grain, 
what happens is it begins a conversion process of going from a grain to a vegetable. I mean, if you really want to think about it, if you think about a, um, let's say we took a, a, a piece of, uh, of buckwheat, right? And it's, okay, it's not a true grain, so let's take something else. Let's take, let's take something like a wheat berry. And I, I wet that down and I let it sprout. If I let it sprout to where it's just sticking a little, little rootlet out of the grain, it's partway through the conversion process. It's not fully grain anymore and it's not fully vegetable yet. It's in a place in between. It's just started to grow. It's just started the conversion process. Now, what it's done is it's taken the starch, it's turned it to sugar so the plant can use it for its initial growth. If I stop the process there and toast it, I make malted, malted wheat. I can make beer out of it. Extract it and, and, and ferment it, right? Okay. If I let it go a little longer, every moment longer I let it go is it starts to put out a little blade, a little blade of wheatgrass or barley grass. It starts to grow up and consumes more and more of the energy that's in the kernel, the more vegetable it becomes. There's a point at which some sprouts are really good eating when the grain's all the way gone, and some get too grassy and too uh, too woody, and we really aren't going to want to eat them as they are. We might have to process them in some way. So most sprouted grain breads, for instance, they're better for you. They're far less toxic to your system. They have far less of a carbohydrate load. They have far less of a insulin inulin response mechanism built into them because much of the sugar has been converted and you're eating something much more akin to a vegetable. But they're in that limbo state in between. So what you're doing is mitigating them versus... Now, the interesting thing, though, from a paleo perspective, what I'm really interested in is before modern agriculture, what did my ancestors eat? For the majority of the time, humans evolved as a species... Over hundreds of thousands of years is pro-humanoid and humanoid organisms. What did we eat? And like one of the easiest things you could do to make a grain or a seed that's not really edible edible is once you understand that moisture makes it sprout, it's sprouted. It softens it. It becomes consumable. So I believe that humans ate this for a lot longer than we ate things based on flour. So... I would call it paleo-ish to paleo, depending on how sprouted it is. If I take something like sunflower seeds, in and of themselves, they're semi-paleo. They begin to sprout. They're a little bit more. By the time they're a little plant, well, they're a vegetable now. I'm eating a green. I might as well be eating lettuce. The entire biochemical makeup of the grain has changed. If I take wheat and I sprout it to a rootlet comes out of it, and then I dry it and I make a bread out of it, it's less toxic. A lot of the toxic components to humans, and wheat is toxic to humans, whether you want to believe that or not, it won't kill you dead, but it's not good for you, have been transformed, and it, it, just like sourdough fermentation, makes it less toxic. But if I turn it all the way to wheatgrass, to where what's there now is roots and grass, and the grain itself is gone, it's not a grain anymore. It's not a grain anymore. It's like comparing a lettuce seed to a lettuce plant. They're two different things. Or an amaranth grain to an amaranth leaf. 
They're two different things. So by the time we go to full-on plant matter versus stored energy in a grain kernel, we're absolutely paleo. At the point where we're in a grain, we're not. And in the middle, we're in just that state. We're in the middle. Uh, next up, I got two questions for Stephen Harris. In the interest of your time, I'm going to play the question, the answer, the question, the answer, and I'm coming back with one more that you're not going to want to miss today. Hi, Jack. This is Adam Cohen from Northern California, and I have a question for Mr. Stephen Harris. Stephen, I have twin four-year-olds who absolutely love flashlights. The problem is the ones that you get for little kids are too easy to break, and the ones that are mine are also too easy to break, but mine cost a lot more to replace. So I'm looking for a durable and reliable flashlight that I can give my twins so I can start to teach them the importance of being prepared, i.e., keeping track of at least one thing in the house that's useful. So I think in the past I heard you mention one on a show that you thought was really good and durable and easy to use. So if you've got any recommendations, I would surely appreciate it. Thanks. Adam from Northern California. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. What you are looking for is the Energizer Trail Finder headlamp also known as the Energizer Industrial Headlamp, or on my 1234 sites, it's just the Energizer Headlamp. This is designed for construction people and going around hard hats and everything, so it is durable, it can take a beating, and it can survive your children. I have several of these. Uh, I, I mean, I own several of these headlamps. They're my mainstay headlamp. They're the ones that sit down... Uh, near my inverters and everything else so I can grab it when it's dark and turn it on and get my inverters and my lights out and get everything going and get the house illuminated. It's the one I travel with in my uh, computer bag or my backpack. It's my favorite. I own it and I use it because they're so rugged and, and they take abuse and they work and they work and they work. They also have a hard off switch. It's not like a soft on switch where it's looking there with a little bit of power all the time. Did he push it? Did he push it? Did he push it? When you hit the switch, it is a hard click. It goes click, 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 click between each mode. So when it's off, it's really off. And it won't be draining your battery. And it's great for the kids. These are about $15 each, between 14 and 17 depending on uh, what Amazon is charging that day. So they are affordable, and they are bright, too. But they're not so bright as to harm a child's eyes if they look into it. I am pretty sure that your four-year-old twins will just love these flashlights and that they will take a beating. I suggest these be their everyday play flashlights as well as their emergency flashlights. That way there is no distinction between the two. When the power fails, it will be a second nature for the kids to get out their favorite flashlight and run around the house and to help daddy. These flashlights are also headlamps. So they can put them on their heads and run around with either red light, white lights, very bright lights, or flashing white lights. Oh, the horror I just unleashed on you. The flashlights take AAA batteries, so you can use our favorite AAA N-Loop batteries with them. And you can recharge them in our favorite PowerX charger. 
Since the PowerX charger is so easy to use, literally a child can use it, I suggest you make it the kid's responsibility to recharge all of the rechargeable batteries in the house, the batteries in their toys, the batteries in the remote controls, the batteries in the gaming console, the batteries in their flashlight. It gives them a sense of accomplishment and responsibility and also something that they can do for you in the disaster. There is one other flashlight on the page that will help the kids. It's a real handheld flashlight. It's all metal. It's the Coast HP-1, and it takes one AA battery, and this can be one AA nickel metal hydride battery that the kids recharge. It's very rugged, and it's only, it only costs 10 bucks. I carry, carry one everywhere as part of my everyday carry. All of these flashlights, the batteries, the chargers, and the battery testers are on the very, very bottom of www.prep1234.com. That's P-R-E-P-1234.com. So it's easy for you to go quickly look at them and find them. Also, there are on the same page, just above these flashlights, the Super Lithium 18650 and Super Lithium 14500 batteries and flashlights that I spoke about last week. One-stop shopping for all your flashlights, and with that, I write about, and with what I write about in each paragraph, it's a small education on that battery or that flashlight in its own. It's almost like a little prep lesson for that flashlight. I just don't take the description from Amazon and copy it over. I own these. I use these. So I write the description about what they do, what they can't do, what their advantages, what their disadvantages, what their special purposes, etc. So definitely read what I wrote next to each item and you will be able to decide for yourself what will work best for you. Thanks for calling in. This is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel, reminding everyone that if you want to listen to all of the great things I have done with Jack and other stuff I've done in the past, it is all at Stephen1234.com. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Hi, I was, this is Tom in North Georgia. I would like to ask about generator selection. I have a relatively low peak load service, 1200 watts when the refrigerator starts, a one horsepower well pump, and maybe a window AC unit. The well pump needs 240 volts, but otherwise a 2000 watt inverter generator might be sufficient. I like those, but small ones don't output 240 volts. Should I look at something like a 3750 or a 5000 watt non-inverter generator like a Generac or could I pair a 120-volt inverter generator with a large voltage step-up transformer? Thanks. Tom in North Georgia. This is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. You are lucky. You have a small well pump being only one horsepower. If it really is only one horsepower, most well pumps for freshwater wells are not one horsepower. You must have a shallow well. Most are three or four or more horsepower. And since there are 746 watts in a horsepower, this is pretty close to one kilowatt per horsepower, especially with the starting load and everything else. For these size well pumps, the two and the three and the four kilowatt 
hour well pumps or horsepower well pumps, you will need a regular generator with a 240 volt output on it. For years, you're lucky. Only one horsepower, so around 750 watts of power. That's without the startup kick that in the surge that you might need. So you're in luck. I have just received from a customer and a fan photographs of his generator setup to run his shallow well pump up in the woods of Michigan. He, too, has a one-horsepower well pump, and he uses two Honda EU2000Is linked in parallel with the Honda Parallel Kit, and he uses a step-up transformer to run his well. And he has done this successfully for months. This is where he lives and does this full-time. I have found that step-up transformer that my buddy was using on Amazon, and I put it on the very, very bottom of prep1234.com for you to take a look at. Note, I would be very smart to run the well and to pump the water from the well up into a stock tank of some type, and then gravity feed from there and use the water from that tank rather than just running the generator and running the generator all the time in hopes that the well pump is going to be used at some time and the power will kick on. You might also have to disconnect everything else from your generator if you're using a single 2,000-watt generator, which is a 2,000-watt surge and really a 1,600-watt continuous operation generator. You might have to disconnect the refrigerator and some of the other high-power loads so you can turn on the water and use your shower or do dishes or make dinner or etc., but this is a small price to pay for only using one generator and a simple step-up transformer costing just over $100. It is a good thing that will work, and even if you did buy a bigger generator, then this would be your two-is-one, your one, uh, two-is-one, one-is-none type of setup. Uh, for those people who want to know more about generators and what type of generator is best for you, and so you can make that determination, inverter generator, regular generator, El Cheapo two-cycle generator, a diesel generator, a generator on a trailer, etc., I cover all seven types and classifications of generators in a show that I did with Jack, it's called Generator Show Number One, and it's at solar1234.com. That's S-O-L-A-R, 1234.com, and it's available for you to listen to instantly right now and to get a complete education on what you need for yourself by you making that decision for you. Not me making it for you, me teaching you, and you making the decision for yourself. Also, all of the stuff I have done, generator show number two, battery show number one, battery show number two, uh, how to power your house from your car, and everything else I've done with Jack is at www.steven1234.com. Thanks for calling in such a really good and interesting question. Uh, this is something that will help others, and it's new information that I got in my in my face from one of you with photographs and I had a detailed conversation with him about what he did, how he did it, 
the problems, etc. And the end result is it works. You can use a step-up transformer to run a, a well from a 120-volt generator if it's got enough power for it. Thank you very much. This is Steve Harris for the extra panel. Please call in some more questions. I love doing this, and I will talk to you hopefully next week. Bye. Hey, Jack. I'm calling because I'm really tired of hearing everyone trash these young millennials, these 18 to 22-year-olds, saying they're lazy, they don't, you know, care about anyone else, that they won't don't help anyone. You know what? Our generation needs to kind of shut the F up and get to know some of these kids. Because, frankly, I've watched them do things that we don't get. They save more than us. They've had it rougher. Most of them have a lot of broken families. You know, I'm going through a divorce right now, and the 20-year-old neighbor came over and shoved my drive without asking. He's also come over and helped with dishes and stuff, knowing I'm just beaten down and stressed. And you know what? My my generation, the older generation, they're not around. They can't be bothered. And, you know, they don't care about the things we do. They don't want the big screen TVs. They want to have jobs they actually like. They want really nice cell phones, but that's because they're mobile and more connected than we are. And I think, really, if you're in my generation and up, if you're up in your 30s or older, and you think this generation is just lazy and won't do anything for anyone, Maybe you need to take the time and get to know some of them, because, you know, I'm actually pretty impressed by them. You know, um, music often holds a lot of answers, because writers of songs tend to understand things at a deeper, intuitive level. And I think that maybe the problem is the solution applies here. And before I try to explain that... I'm going to play part of a song to you, and then I'm actually going to play the whole song after I talk about it, instead of the revolution issue at the end of today's show. This is from the 80s, long before we had the millennial generation, and the means of communication between the generations that the Internet has become. And uh, I'd like you to listen to this first part of the song. I'm going to come back to you and talk about a few of the words that you'll hear, and a few of the words you'll hear later, and how they apply to this, and why the problem might indeed be the solution. I'm afraid that's all we've got. You 
You know, the part of the issue is that we always think that, well, things are really different today than they used to be, and, and they're not. I, I want to go over a few of those words from that song with you. Every generation blames the one before. Again, this song is from the 1980s. And all of their frustrations come beating on your door. I know that I'm a prisoner to all my father held so dear. I know that I'm a hostage to all his hopes and fears. Think about that. So... As we age and as we grow, we become convicted in our beliefs. And we do the best we can with what we have, and we create what we, what we believe is best for the next generation. The next generation has its own ideas, and it wants to move forward. And we effectively are boat anchors. Now, there's, there's anchors are good and bad, right? Anchors keep you from drifting aimlessly. During a storm, an anchor can save your ship. Anchors ground you in reality. But if you're going to sail, you got to pull the anchor up. And we intrinsically fear change as human beings. So the next generation is always trying to push the evolution to the next level. And we're always saying, hold on, both with wisdom and fear. And learning to temper the wisdom against the fear is our challenge. And their challenge is is learning to integrate the wisdom and overcome the fear. And when those two worlds come into conflict, the new generation blames the old one for holding them back. Interesting, isn't it? Now, the next thing that I always really got a lot from in this song, crumbled bits of paper filled with imperfect thought. Stilted conversations, I'm afraid that's all we've got. You say you just don't see it. He says it's perfect sense. You just can't get agreement in this present tense. We all talk a different language, talking in defense. And what that means is, as more mature individuals we tend to wax nostalgically at the way things were. And we try to believe that that was the best of our days, was the past. False nostalgia. And we bring that into the modern day, and at the point that we're in our 40s and 50s, hopefully we've achieved something, we have some level of success in our life, we've worked really hard for what we have, and we've probably done a lot of dumb shit along the way. We have a need to defend our actions. We don't want to admit what we did wrong. Put it this way, there's no father that played football in high school that didn't score a few more touchdowns in his conversation with his son than he did on the field. And you can take that analogy through all of life. The story is always it was a little bit harder than it was, it was a little bit tougher than it was. Sometimes it's actually it was a little bit easier than it was. Have this balance. And we use words that don't mean the same thing to the next generation as they do to us. And they use words that don't mean the same thing to them as they do to us. 
And we explain things in a way that makes perfect sense to us, and it doesn't make any damn sense at all to them. Because we're busy with an anchored boat catching fish while they're looking for the next place that the fish are going to be. And we don't understand each other. And then there's the chorus. And then it goes on to say this, and you'll hear these words when you hear the rest of the song. So we open up a quarrel between the present and the past. We only sacrifice the future. It's the bitterness that lasts. These big arguments, these big intergenerational arguments, in the grand scheme of things, what we're arguing about doesn't mean anything. Everybody forgets what they were bitching about. Next week. Whatever the argument was, whatever the anger was about, most of the time people don't even remember. What are you pissed about? I don't don't really know. They think they know, but they don't. And you try to drill down to it. But the bitterness stays. The anger stays. The resentment stays. So don't yield to the fortunes you sometimes see as fate. It may have a new perspective on a different day. And if you don't give up and you don't give in, you just might be okay. So what is isn't what's going to be. On both sides need to accept that. The millennial that's thinking, I have no future, you have a future. The, the guy that's a generation after before you that thinks you have no future, he has a future. So do you. We're not done yet. Here's a, here's a test to see if you're done yet. Are you breathing? You're not done yet. If you hold a mirror in front of your mouth and fog gets on the mirror, you're not done yet. You got shit to do. Get busy doing it. That's what I think that means. So, <laughs> I, I, I really think there's a lot to learn from this song. And that's why I'm going to play it instead of you know my song at the end today. But then I want to take that perspective and use it to examine the situation. And... I want to read the chorus here before I do, because I think that the problem is the solution, and what's being suggested is happening, but instead of at a familial level, at a community level, because of the internet in a way that it's never happened before, say it loud, say it clear, you can listen as well as you hear. Ooh, that should, that should just take all of us and two by four between the eyes. You can listen as well as you hear. So we all hear everything. We don't necessarily listen to it, but we could. It's too late when we die to admit we don't see eye to eye. Now, what I think's actually happened, why there's more tension with the millennials and the Xers like me, and and the people a few generations back, is for the first time, we're actually admitting we don't see eye to eye on a much broader level. The older generation has always said, these kids don't get it. These kids and their dadgone blue jeans and rock and roll. They just don't get it. Huh? All right? The, the, the newest generation going into adulthood has always looked back and resented the generation before them. We've always been the boat anchor, guys, the generation before. We've always been the, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, that won't work, blah, 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 right? And it makes me think of the old proverb, those who say a thing couldn't, can't be done should not interfere with those who are already doing it. Well, sometimes, guys, these kids are doing what we say can't be done. 
either get on board or get out of the way when they're doing it, man. And and I want you to think of the fact that they now know what we're saying. In the past, you knew what your old man said, right? And maybe your uncle. And you heard a little grumbling here and there. Now it's all out in the open. Now it's all on the internet. Now there's articles about it. Because anybody can publish information. Now we're admitting we don't see eye to eye. So we either resolve the conflict or entrench in it. I think the point of this song wasn't admit you don't see eye to eye so that you can irritate the conflict, but to resolve the conflict. To try to have a conversation where we understand each other. So one way or another, we're there now. They know and we know. And the previous generation knows. Not only does the millennial know about the conflict between them and Gen X, their parents, and then the wives are stuck in the middle of this, right? Is it just a little bit older than the millennials but younger than me? And and the the tweeners, the people that were not quite the baby boom but not quite the Gen X, stuck in between, just like it all repeats itself like a pattern. But the, but the tweeners and the Xers and the boomers, we know what the World War II generation thought of us. Not as much because they're not as active, but the Xers, we know what the boomers think of us. right? So these conflicts are now right in our face. And we can either have a conversation about them and admit the differences, or we could bury them once again. Very interesting concept to think about. And I think now that that's known, we have this opportunity for both of us to admit we don't understand each other. And then try to understand each other. Because it's an understanding that maybe we can go forward a little faster. And I want you to put yourself in the, 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 uh, the shoes of one of these young people for a minute. What if you were judged solely on your generational bracket based on the lowest performing people in your bracket? Huh? What? <laughs> What if the Gen Xer of today, instead of being looked at as this technologically innovative group of people that built all these amazing things, the programmers that are doing amazing things, or that did amazing things, that enabled the internet, right? The people that did all of this cool stuff. What if we were judged by the 40-year-olds that are currently living in trailer parks and doing meth? You know who they were in high school, guys. They sat right next to you. What if... In high school, and just after high school, the prior generation judged you based on that bottom tier. And the, their entire opinion of you was based on that bottom tier. Guess what? It was. You just didn't know it. They know. And that's what we're doing. It's unfair. Same thing was done to us. We just didn't know it. What if, what if you're part of the baby boom generation? What if your entire generation was judged on stoned hippies rolling around in the mud at Woodstock? Instead of being the people that built the highway systems after the World War generation, you know, two generation handed it off to them. And did all these, these linking innovations between the concrete and steel world of the, the, the World War II generation. 
and the technical innovation of the Gen Xer. What if instead of being seen as that, because now you've matured and had a, a chance for the fruits of your efforts to be seen, what if you were still judged based on the stoned, mud-rolling hippie? How would you feel? Guess what? You were. <laughs> All right. You, you, and even you knew that, but not anywhere near to the level that they know it today. Think about when, if you're, if you're a baby boomer, And you were in the 70s in the free love world and all, and all that stuff was going on. And you, you were just trying to figure out your life. Think about what you felt like when you were judged that way. Right? What if you're from the World War II generation? What if instead of going to the prior generation, what if we said, greatest generation? These are the guys that made black people sit in the back of the bus. These guys are racist assholes. What if we judge the whole World War II generation on the bottom 10% of performance of their generation? Do you think there were no screw-ups in 1950? You don't think there was a, any of these, these guys that had, like in 1948 that were 22-year-olds that weren't screw-ups? What if we judge the greatest generation, as we call it, on the bottom 10% of their generation? Let me tell you something. <laughs> I'll bet you, I'll bet you, right up until World War II, there were a lot of people that remember World War I and the hard times of the teens and the Spanish flu and all the shit they went through. They looked at their kids and said, what do these kids think today? What are they doing listening to this crazy stuff like Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday and this jazz crap? This is... This, this stuff is crazy, and they want, to, they want to get rid of prohibition. We work so hard to get rid of this evil alcohol. They want to bring it back. What's wrong with these kids? That's what we're doing, guys. When we, when we put this group of kids down, I call them kids. If you're 25, I call you a kid today. My kid's 25, so you're a kid too. We're judging them on their screw-ups. We're judging them on the burnout kid that sat across from you in school. Instead of you. And guess what? A lot of those burnouts turn around anyway. A lot of those guys are captains of industry today. A lot of them aren't. And the ones that just fell out, what if you were judged on them today? That's how these kids feel. But the reason we don't understand each other, and you know why they're so subjective to this government can fix stuff? Because they see the inequity in the world, and we're not giving them a solution. We're just going, U.S. like number one, don't vote Democrat. Well, that's not a solution. That's not a solution. So they're like, well, something has to be done. And do you know what always happens when people start thinking that way? Bad shit happens. When you start thinking, we got to do something, we got to do something, that's always a prelude to doing something stupid. I mean, if you want a society to buy into stupidity and dumbass shit, get everybody saying, well, something has to be done, something, get people like that. And then they'll just go, okay, well, then we can do this. No matter how dumbass it is, at least 52% of them will buy into it. That's all you need to swing an election and get it done. But if you actually start saying, well, what can we do without them? People in power are, are, are just... Because, let me tell you something. The 20-year-old, 22-year-old, 23-year-old that helped put somebody like Barack Obama in office, they didn't really want Barack Obama. They didn't really think the government was going to fix it. 
They just thought, we got to do something. At least this guy's different. Sounds different. Less of them showed up the second time around, guys. You know, he might have won a re-election, but the total turnout, especially of young people, went way down. It's like, oh, you're just like everybody else, jackass. And most of the kids that are 22, 23, they have no faith in government. They really don't. They don't vote. 18-year-olds don't vote. I mean, you're, well, I got one, and he votes. Well, you might have made him, or maybe he does, or whatever. But by and large, low turnout. That's why both sides think we can motivate this group. We can sway an election because there's so few of them that vote. If you can make them show up, they can change things to your benefit, not theirs. So if you want this next generation to fulfill its destiny and do what it can, then yeah, let's have the conversation. Let's explain where the anchor makes sense. Let's have a little faith to hand them the wheel once in a while and let them pull it up. That's the future. And some of what these kids need is some people in our generation to stand up for them. Because you know what you feel like when no one will stand up for you and you're trying to do good shit? You feel like crap. You feel like, screw it. F them. You know what? They're going to be old someday. They're going to be old someday. They're going to need us. Screw them. That's what you're telling. I mean, that's what you're basically saying. Look, you're on your own, kid. All right. Well, so are you, Grandpa. Sooner or later, you ain't going to be 40 anymore. You're going to be 80. Might be nice if those guys were on your side. They're going to be in they're going to be 40 then. They're going to be 30, 40. They're going to be in charge. Your future's in their hands, whether you like it or not. You might want to help them with it. That's all I'm saying. And I think when I look at our future and I talk to these kids, right, that are 20 years old and they even give a shit about the future, I'm very encouraged. Because I'll tell you what, at 20, I didn't. I cared about tomorrow. I cared about getting through next week. I cared about paying my bills. When I when people say, well, what about 20 years from now? That's somebody else's issue, man. I don't have time for that. Because I was part of Gen X, and that's how we came up. That's who we were. We looked at our parents. You, if you're a millennial and you think you looked at you look at your parents from my generation and like they haven't made, oh man, you don't know nothing. You know, our parents, unless they got hit by the the, the depressions of the '70s and '80s hard, they had it made. They were getting retirements, actual real retirements, gold watches still back then. And even when we knew they were going away, your old man was old enough that if that was his bag, man, he was headed, or they were, they ran businesses. And it was easier to start a business in some ways. I mean, we dealt with the same thing. And our solution was, you know what? If we're on our own, fine. Then we're on our own. And that actually made us very good at getting some things done. It was another phase of the evolution of mankind. Most of the people from my generation that have had major impacts on society, when you talk to them about their childhood, it's not a happy story. It's not. And then they turned around and they raised a generation where if they made any mistakes, they were too easy on them and too hard at the same time. They heard, but they didn't listen. They got good at pretending to listen. 
because they knew nobody ever listened to them. But they were so busy doing shit because they were still, you thought it was easy. They were underwater all the time trying to make it. And when they finally made it, they said, oh. and they turn and then you, they feel like this generation that they've just raised is a bunch of wusses. In some ways you guys are. Not all of you, but some ways you know you are. Right? When, when, when you're crying because somebody made fun of you, you're a wuss. Especially when they made fun of you like because they liked you. Like, I had young guys work for me that couldn't understand that. Why do these guys say these things about me? Because they like you. And in some ways, we, we raised a generation that also feels that they're on their own. Because people that are on their own have an attitude of being on their own. And they're going to procreate in a way that creates people that feel that they're on their own. Well, we can change that. Or we can just keep telling these kids they suck. And hope they forgive us when we're 85. I don't think that's the approach I want to take. I think I want to harness all this creativity. See, what I've learned is even a person like me, the older I get, the less willing I am to do something different or try something new. I'll try new food or something like that. But I mean, we talk about radical transformation of the way I do business. Hey, you know what? This shit pays the bills. I got a mortgage to pay. It works. You know, farmers that are, average farmer today is 64 years old. Hey, look, plant trees and do silvo pasture. Dude, my corn pays the bills. Get away from me. I don't have time for this. And us Gen Xers, man, we're in that stage where we're like, we'll still do it, but we, you could feel it. You know, they change the layout on the iPhone screen. You're pissed, right? Money all starts clicking shit. What does this do now? This is awesome, right? We need... Those intergenerational groups. The old man that knows how to make a living with a piece of land. That does everything that the millennial sees as wrong is a wealth of knowledge for the millennial. If he, oh, he sprayed Roundup. So what? Everybody did back then. Get over it. Get over yourself. You know? Or he had a racist attitude back then. Get over it. Get over it. It's over. It's done. Hopefully he's wised up by now. It was a product of his environment, just like you are. The guy in the middle has to say, hey, you know, we're the pivot point right now. We only have so much time to be the pivot point. We only have so much time to be the bridge before we're old too. You young people, you're going to be old like us before you know it. And you could accomplish a lot between that and now. You could have everything we have and more. The future's still bright. Don't lose yourself on the way. Because I think most of us that are 40 or older, If we could have a conversation with ourselves when, our, when we were 12, that 12-year-old would kick our ass. And I think in some ways, we have it coming. So that's my thoughts on this. And I do think these young people need an advocate, and I'm glad to hear people doing it. And I think we need a more open conversation. And maybe we need some translators. And guys, those of us of the X generation, that's our job. We're the translators. We have enough exposure to the new world and the new technology to understand what these young people are really all about. We have enough of old school memory to understand what our parents are all about. We're the translators, and the parents have always been the translators. We just forgot that for a while. Because if you're a Gen Xer, you probably identified more with your grandparents than your parents. Hmm? Well... <laughs> You're on your way to being grandparents, guys. Think hard about this stuff. 
And now listen to the song and hear all the words maybe in a new light. I think it might help you with uh, your decisions about how to be good mentors, good translators, if you're in my group. And understand if you're in this, this millennial generation, what you're feeling is nothing new. Your parents grew up feeling the same way. You're just more aware of it. It's part of the modern age. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
I just wish I could have told him in the 